As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. For our audience worldwide on TV and radio, White House National Economic Council Director Brian Deese joins us right now. Brian, fantastic to catch up with you, sir. Core CPI in America, 40-year high. This is the last inflation report before the midterms. Does the White House take any responsibility for this whatsoever? Well, look, it's clear that inflation is a challenge. It is a global challenge affecting countries around the world. And I think the first and most important part point to make is that the United States is in a better position than virtually any other country to address this challenge and do what is necessary to bring prices down without having to give up all of the economic gains that we have made. That continues to be our focus, and that will continue to be our focus until we get uh, this job done. The challenge is getting bigger. The president acknowledged this week the potential for a very slight recession. His words, his assessment. You briefed the president this week, Brian. Have your internal forecasts become more or less negative over the last few months? Well, I think it's important to look at this monthly uh, data in, in, in context. We are seeing some progress. If you look at annualized headline inflation over the last three months, it was about 2%. That's down from 11% in the prior quarter. Now, a lot of that is the significant reduction in energy prices and in gas prices at the pump. Obviously, economists tend to strip those out and look at core, but for typical American families, for workers, the reduction in gas prices by more than a dollar a gallon in most places in the country uh, is a meaningful and real uh, sign of progress. At the same time, we're seeing some elements of a transition which we anticipated, but now focus on the work ahead. Shelter inflation uh, represented more than half of core inflation for the last couple of months. Uh, and obviously, that's a place where we're going to have to look very carefully because uh, there is a well-known understanding that that data operates with a lag. And we're seeing some contemporaneous real-time evidence of sharp deceleration in rental price appreciation, sharp deceleration in home price appreciation. So that's going to be an area that we're going to have to stay very focused on here in the days and months Brian, ahead. can you see why people get really frustrated with politicians? 12 months ago, six months ago, you would have said, strip out gasoline and look at what's happening elsewhere. And now it's leave gasoline in because gasoline is coming down. Brian, can you see why people are very frustrated with the way the White House has navigated this issue? 
No, look, I would, I would, I'd, I'd take issue with that characterization. Why? We always say that we look at the data, because we always say that we look at the data in the aggregate, and there's a reason to look in the fullness of overall inflation, and then also to look at elements of the core, like I just said. For typical American families, gas and food are big parts of their t- typical budget, and food prices uh, um, in this uh, report and in prior reports are moving up too fast, and that's something that uh, we, we, we need to make more we need to make more progress on. So we look at all of the data and understand uh, the point about uh, gas prices is just a very salient one. Your outlet, various others over the course of the spring spent a lot of time focused on the increase in gas prices and the impact that has on the economy, on consumer sentiment. Now that they're coming down, it's important to recognize that that has an impact on the economy as well. Well, more recently, they've been going back up, as well you know. It's why you've been very critical of Saudi Arabia over the last week. The president talked about consequences for Saudi Arabia. Brian, what consequences? What are they? Well, I'm not going to get ahead of the president. And as he said, uh, he will uh, make those decisions and, and, and make those announcements uh, when he is prepared uh, to do so. I think our focus right now is on continuing to uh, make that progress. If you look nationally right now, gas prices are still down about a dollar and ten, a dollar and twenty cents from their highs uh, this summer. We're seeing some welcome moderation in, in certain areas of the country, the Midwest and California now. And we still face this historically large gap between the wholesale price uh, that, that, that energy companies pay for refined products, gas, diesel, otherwise, and the retail price that consumers are paying. So that's a continued area of focus. Obviously, refinery and refinery capacity is an element of that. But that's uh, one of many areas that we are working with the industry and trying to focus on what we can do from a practical perspective, from a policy perspective, to try to move the ball forward. On OPEC Plus, the NSC spokesperson, John Kirby, called the decision short-sighted, a short-sighted decision that benefited Russia. Can you understand why using the SPR as the strategic midterm reserve is a short-sighted decision that only leaves this country even more exposed to the whims of OPEC plus next year? No, look, I disagree. We said that the the OPEC decision was short-sighted precisely because the lack of supply and reliable supply continues to be the dominant challenge globally in energy markets. The lack of supply continues to be the dominant risk. And the use of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in a historic but calibrated way starting last, uh, last winter was designed to address that problem and to help have additional supply on the market during this transition and during a period where we knew Russian supply was coming off and U.S. producers were ramping up. That's why if you talk to most uh, energy market analysts, they will point to the fact that that use of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve as a bridge, as a bridge as U.S. producers brought production back online, was one of the principal reasons that kept oil prices from moving up even more quickly over the course uh, of the summer and into the fall. That's a prudent use of the asset as a transition as U.S. producers ramp up. You say it's a prudent use of the asset. Other people are very worried about this. You've drained the SPR to its lowest level in four decades. There's some accusation that you're using, you're putting the polls before America's energy security. Brian, the Saudis themselves said this morning that the U.S. requested a one-month delay to the OPEC plus output. I wonder why that would be. Brian, can you tell me whether you did ask the Saudis for a one-month delay to that decision? Are they telling the truth? Look, we clearly we clearly communicated our views to OPEC members that we thought it was short-sighted to, for them to take uh, the action that they were contemplating, and they announced. With respect to the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, this was a calibrated decision to address the real issues in the market. We talked to U.S. industry last winter. We identified that there was about a million barrel a day gap between what they were producing this winter and what they said that they could get production to by late this fall. 
That million barrel gap was what we calibrated to make the decision on the use of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And people should feel confident that the Strategic Petroleum Reserve continues to be an asset that we can deploy to address our economic and national security needs. That's always what has dictated the president's decision making on this, and that's what uh, will dictate his decision making on this going forward. Brian, you didn't answer the question, so I'm going to ask it again. I'm going to share with you and share with our audience the quote from the Saudis this morning. The government of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia would like to clarify that based on its belief in the importance of dialogue and exchange of views with its allies and partners outside of OPEC Plus regarding the situation in the oil markets, the government of the Kingdom clarified through its continuous consultation with the US administration that all economic analyses indicate that postponing the OPEC Plus decision for a month, according to what has been suggested, would have had negative economic consequences. Brian, again, it's a really straight question. Did you ask the Saudis to delay that decision for a month. Are they telling the truth or not? Look, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, to, to uh, get on, on, on air and disclose private conversations that well, members of our private. administration have with The Saudis have shared it with us. With You've got the opportunity to say it's true or not. Is it true or not? What I will say, what I will say, what I will say clearly is that the communications that we've had with OPEC members and continuing have been based on our assessment of the economic circumstances of supply and demand in global oil markets. We disagree with the assessment in that statement that it was economically the right or necessary or appropriate thing to do to reduce production at a time where the lack of global supply on the market continues to be the predominant challenge in global energy markets. That has been and continues to be the motivation behind all of our engagement Again, they're suggesting it's a political one, that your strategy is political, that your effort to get I understand what they're suggesting and what I'm saying to you is that our strategy, I, I understand what they are suggesting and what I'm saying to you is that our strategy has always been grounded in an assessment of the economics of the situation and what is prudent for the global economy, for U.S. economy and U.S. families. So the way you would have some kind of viable energy policy from here is to make the decision as to whether what we're experiencing right now is a one-off shock or something more permanent, a one-off winter, or something more permanent, a permanent shift away from Russian energy. Brian, which one is it? We are in a, we're in a transition where we face some very immediate challenges, but absolutely energy markets globally and in the United States are going to go through a transition. We're never going to go back to the pre-pandemic or the pre-Putin invasion uh, paradigm on energy policy. And that's frankly why, even as we have worked in to address very immediate term issues, including helping the Europeans increase their reserves of natural gas going yeah. into this winter to try to address those immediate challenges, we have been focused on long-term prudent energy policy policy and providing incentives, incentives for U.S. producers of cleaner sources of energy to produce at scale and at speed that they've never done so before and to do so in lower cost ways here in the United States so that we can be a reliable supplier of clean, low cost electricity to our industry, to our own uh, consumers and families and to the world. The United States, the Biden administration have focused on that. We prioritize that. And in fact, we have now legislated long term incentives to drive exactly that that kind of investment in the United States. And that's based on an understanding that we are going to continue to be in a historic energy transition, not just in the months ahead, but in the years ahead as well. Brian, if this is not a one-off shock, if this is a permanent shift, can we complete the conversation by you telling me how it's a viable strategy, a sustainable approach to drain the SPR to a four-decade low? If it's not about politics, why is that viable? Why is that strategy sustainable? 
Appreciate the question. It's a mischaracterization of how we use the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. We announced a policy that was explicitly designed as a temporary bridge over the course of months, 180 million barrels to bridge a temporary situation while U.S. producers were ramping up supply in the short term. Our long-term challenges around energy are about investing in increasing the supply of clean energy in the United States and globally at massive scale. Those require different policy tools, which is why we've enacted historic, historic incentives, $370 billion in long-term incentives to increase investment in the United States. That's the right long-term policy solution. You, we can take short-term and temporary measures that are prudent and well-calibrated alongside long-term measures. That's what we've been doing. Brian Deese, we appreciate your time this morning, sir. We really do. Thank you very much for choosing Bloomberg TV and Bloomberg Radio to have this conversation. Brian Deese there, the National Economic Council Director. I'm trying to suggest a one-hour conversation with the managing director of the International Monetary Fund. Her entourage says that's not going to happen, so let's cut it down to 20 minutes. <laughs> managing director, thank you so much for seeing us. I have a plan. Eric Martin briefed me over a beverage of my choice last night and gave me this beautiful plan of discussion. We're going to rip up the script, and we have to because of inflation. When you speak to your PhDs, when you speak to Gita Gopinath and the rest, and with your doctorate as well. Do you have a character or understanding of this inflation? What is the makeup of this inflation that won't seem to go away? The uh, makeup is uh, one, disruptions uh, from Omicron, and they continue in China. Two, Russia's senseless war against Ukraine that has pushed energy and food prices up. We also are going to see some repositioning of supply chains that would have longer-term impact on cost structures. But right now, what we face is demand remains quite strong and supply has trouble meeting it. The most important task we have to secure our economies is to win the fight against inflation. And that means for central banks to show the resolve that is necessary. And why we need to do that? Why do we need to win this war? Because if we do not have price stability, we undermine prospects for growth. And because we hit incomes of people but things severely. things are moving quickly. The U.S. real yield, as Jim Caron of Morgan Stanley mm. just mentioned, moves 10 basis points. The two-year yield moves, I believe, 18 basis points. Do you suggest, would the IMF suggest to central bankers, including Chairman Powell, that they need to slow down the dialogue and the certitude, the rhetoric, and extend the timeline out, even at sacrificing a higher inflation, to provide for financial stability? What we are suggesting is that uh, the Fed needs to continue to be data-driven. They need to look at the economy. They need to look at where the signals are in terms of are we reaching price stability or not. And then they need to look at the uh, impact their decisions would have domestically, mm -hmm. but also internationally. Let's remember uh, tighter financial conditions also mean stronger dollar, 
also mean capital outflows from emerging market and developing uh, economies. Of course, the Fed is primarily focused on domestic conditions. The responsibility of the Fed is price stability in the United States. Uh, but also the Fed has been quite active to think of ways to support global stability, especially through extending uh, swap lines to well, a large number of countries. Give us an update on that right now. We talked to uh, mm -hmm. the people of the Green Book, the Financial Stability mm -hmm. Book. What is the IMF's present uh, tone on the quality of the liquidities in the market, given this inflation report this morning? We, we have seen financial stability risks uh, increasing, but we are still primarily concerned about inflation running out of control. If it man maintains so stubborn as mm -hmm. it has been so far, then the uh, most significant risk we face is that inflation expectations de-anchor. And when they de-anchor, that right. means then pressure on wages to go up would fuel mm -hmm. inflation from, uh, uh, from well, other uh, directions. And then the job right. of the Fed would become harder and it needs to tighten even right. more. Well, two more questions very, very uh, quickly here. You met yesterday uh, with certain members of the British government, mm -hmm. I believe a gentleman from the Bank of England and a beleaguered chancellor of the mm -hmm. Exchequer. Mm -hmm. uh, did you put them put out in the proverbial American woodshed? I mean, uh, <laughs> give us the insight. No, no, one's, no one's listening watching right now. How did that bilat go with the two members well, of the United it, Kingdom? It went really well. It was a very constructive uh, meeting. Uh, we talked about uh, the uh, narrow path that the world economy has to walk uh, on uh, mm -hmm. today and how important it is uh, not to make missteps out of this path uh, and not to, not to communicate in a way that may be uh, uh, more, right. more difficult. Uh, what I was very encouraged to see is that the two of them uh, sitting together with the common purpose, the Chancellor talking about uh, his uh, intention to accelerate a mm -hmm. projection of how he's going to anchor his budget in medium-term fiscal sustainability, uh, and also his commitment uh, for the Office uh, for Budget Responsibility to come up with independent projections. Uh, that all tells us what we know, that the UK actually mm -hmm. has strong institutions uh, and they do work even if uh, at some point uh, mm -hmm. we may see some, some this With those comments, you'll be invited to the coronation. Dr. Gordieva, <laughs> thank you so much. Seth Carpenter, Global Chief Economist at Morgan Stanley, joins us right now. <laughs> Seth, you've had about seven minutes to pour over the details. Your take on this one, please. Yeah, absolutely. So um, uh, I have to say, I'll, I'll crow a little bit and congratulate my team. So our U.S. economics team, Ellen Zettner, the chief, uh, Julian Richards, who works for her, we were above consensus on our call for this sprint. I think the stickiness that you saw in the shelter inflation was one of the key things. And uh, so clearly a shock for the markets. The markets are, are off because of it. But for us, this actually didn't come in very different from where our forecast was. Uh, there is persistence, especially in the, the services side of inflation. The uh, apparel number I thought was particularly useful, though. For a long time, we and others have been talking about inventories, the pullback of the consumer from consumer goods. We're starting to see it. The challenge, obviously, in this context is it's when uh, other bits of inflation, as Lisa pointed out, are, are just going up more strongly. Right now, 
are seeing the swaps market price in a peak policy rate for the Fe- rate for the Federal Reserve of 4.85% in March of next year. Seth, is that what's required for the Fed to move fast, to continue moving uh, into next year, despite some of the concerns about financial stability? Yeah, I'm not sure that is what's required. That's a little bit above where our, our call is for the peak rate, but only by a hike or so. Um, uh, I think there's two-way risk with that outlook. We have seen uh, the last jobs report was was good, but still softer than the one before. And so if we get that downward trend continuing in non-farm payrolls, if we get down into the 100-something range, I don't, I don't know that it's going to be obvious to the Fed that they need to keep going all the way up, you know, closer to 5%. Seth, I'm struck by what you said. There are certain other areas outside of shelter that were stickier. And I'm thinking about airplane tickets, people saying that after a while, people wouldn't be willing to pay for something that often is a discretionary expenditure. You could see this with Ikea and Pepsi all raising prices and still having pretty good sales. Are you concerned that your team and that you have been a bit too sanguine about how quickly inflation could come down on the other side, about how pervasive even the wage uh, stickiness is right now. Uh, absolutely. If ever there is a time for people who do economic forecasting to be humble, this is it. Uh, it's very, very difficult. Uh, the 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 sort of falling off of inflation for core goods has taken so much longer than we expected. Uh, I think I think there's there's a lot of uncertainty here. The fact that the labor market is in fact cooling. We obviously got the jolts data a couple weeks ago that the market reacted to. We got non-farm payrolls that was solid but still coming down. I really think that part of the economy is going to be key. Can the Fed continue the the tightness, get the overall economy to slow down, get job creation to slow down? That, I think, will be the key to to where inflation goes over the medium term. If you're just tuning in live on TV and radio, you missed the fireworks. Core CPI in America coming in at a 40-year high. Inflation coming in hot. Equities heading south. We're down 1.8% on the S&P. Yields up at the front end of the yield curve, up 14 basis points to 443 and expectations high going into the Fed's next meeting. Last time they met, Seth, in the minutes yesterday, they said the cost of taking too little action to bring down inflation likely outweighs the cost of taking too much action. Seth, do you anticipate when they meet again in November, they'll be thinking the same thing? <laughs> I think they will be uh, wringing their hands quite a lot. Uh, this was uh, obviously an important data point, but it was one data point. Um, the, the minutes also pointed out that at some point they're going to have a discussion about calibrating the size of the rate hikes because they don't want to go too far and, and, and do too much. So I think they're getting to the point now, once we get close to 4% or over 4%, I think they really will be weighing both sides of that coin. Uh, the strength of the underlying economy is important, uh, but inflation here is clearly clearly strong. I, you know, There was the point about used car prices having come down, but new car prices staying strong. I think it's exactly those sorts of frictions that are going on in the goods and services market that is is presenting such the conundrum. Well, there's a lot of friction right now in this bond market, let me tell you. How far can we push this up? 16 basis points, Lisa, on a two-year. 4.45. I'm watching this, and now we're at 4.453. I mean, it just keeps going up higher as the terminal rate now is looking at 4.85%. It is moving closer to that 5% handle that we heard about from Larry Summers, that we heard about from Bill Dudley, and people laughed. Can I just say Bill Dudley said that in the summer of 2020? He nailed it. He was talking about maybe, summer of 21 rather, he was talking about maybe they'd have to go a whole lot further than people thought they would. Seth Carpenter, thank you so much for all the time that you've spent with us this morning. Seth Carpenter of Morgan Stanley.
Right now, he is the president of the World Bank. Of course, David Melpes joins us. I need to clear something up off of a political article, and this is the uproar about senators and your tenure at the World Bank, where something was said, you're not a scientist. I fell off my chair because you are the physics major <laughs> from Colorado College. Uh, always clarify right now your position with the World Bank, given this turf war, this political war in Washington. So it's very clear that people cause greenhouse gas emissions and that affects climate change. And so that should have been clear in the original remarks and whether you're a scientist or not doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And so it got off track. I think we're back on track because what the World Bank is doing is a massive amount uh, with regard to climate change, both right. in countries that need adaptation, li living yes. with the changes going on, and with the mitigation. So there's this intense focus within right. the World Bank on these efforts. And what's great about this, folks, and this goes back decades and decades, one of the coolest science majors in America was the Colorado College. The way they taught science at CC was so different back when Malpass was yeah. there in physics. Let's go to the equation. S equals VOT plus 1FGT squared. <laughs> There's the gravitational constant in there. Nassim Taleb, the derivative giant, says the G matters right now. What does the new gravity of higher yields and inflation mean for the debt buildup that the World Bank confronts? It's, it's, so in, within physics, the gravity is always there. Within economics, there was this temporary period where interest rates could be at zero, and there were various explanations of why that was working. Now it's back to where uh, there, there is a connection between interest rates mm -hmm. and, and inflation. So the central banks are moving up toward some kind of neutral where right. it's non-inflationary. Fiscal policy is also changing massively. One of the themes of this week for, for, the, for the advanced economies is how do you mesh those two policies, the fiscal and monetary policy, so they don't conflict with each other. So if that means you're tightening on one side, do you want to tighten on another okay, side? Okay, but what does it mean for the World Bank and the billions of people in the world at heel to the Bank of England and to the Fed? It, it, this is a really challenging, and I, I call it a crisis-facing development. People living in developing countries aren't getting capital. In fact, there's a capital outflow. Mm -hmm. They're seeing their currencies weaken, and, and a lot of their debt is in dollar terms. So as their currency weakens, the burden of the debt goes up, right. and interest rates are going up. So that's really a trifecta, a triple, uh, a triple burden uh, going on to the countries. And many of them had built up debt under mm -hmm. COVID, because that was the that was the cyclical the counter cyclical response. So th there's been a lot of talk the last uh, couple of days mm -hmm. about ways to have a better debt restructuring process for the countries that hit the wall. Somehow seen through currency from Mundell to Jacob Frankel and on. We've studied foreign exchange on this, but the modern equivalent is in the derivative space and in the immediacy of overnight swap lines. This goes back to your Bear Stearns tenure. Do you feel we have a stronger structure now with swap agreements with the rich guys, the Fed, to allow the World Bank community to have liquidity in these distorted times? Well, 
Um, so developing countries have a challenge in fi finding swap lines. Some do with, with the IMF or with the U.S. Fed, but for the poorer countries in general, they don't. Mm -hmm. They may be able to arrange something, uh, but it, when that happens, that means you're under the gun. So a right. better way to do it is to find a way to get to actual debt reduction so that you can you have light at the end of the tunnel, get out from under the right. debt. Uh, so that applies to the to the lower income countries, you know, we're, we're up to where there are dozens and dozens that are where the debt is unsustainable. And that means you need right. to have some solution yeah. to go through it. That's under discussion. Challenging times, to say the least. David Melfus, thank you so much for joining sure, Bloomberg Tom. today. He is, of course, with the World Bank. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.